Amen, indeed. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, would you open up once again with me to John chapter 12? And if you didn't bring your Bibles with you, the uh, passage for this morning, as always, is in your bulletins, or if you'd like to, you can find it on page 899 of the Blue Pew Bibles that are in front of you. Uh, Last week, uh, we saw, after the triumphal entry, after what we call Palm Sunday, uh, the triumphal entry the week before, we saw a record of some Greeks who were there at the feast, at the Passover at the time in Jerusalem, and they approached Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, with what appears to be a fairly simple request, sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip and then Andrew take these words to Jesus, this message to Jesus, And when he is told about this, Jesus recognizes it as a turning point, as a fulcrum, as a watershed moment in his life. And because it is a watershed moment in his life, it is a watershed moment in the history of the world. In in the words of Jesus, when he gets that simple message, sir, we would see Jesus... Jesus says, that's it. The hour has come. We've been waiting for it for all of history, and the hour is here. The pivotal moment of his life and of human history has come. What does all of that entail? What is significant about this hour? Let me read for us the Word of God this morning. I'm going to pick it up at verse 27, and today I'll read through verse 36 for us. Hear the Word of God. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you. For a little while longer, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Lord God, we thank you for these words. We thank you for that hour. And Jesus, we pray 
that is, you sought to impress upon those who heard you that day the significance of that hour, that now your spirit working through this word would impress it upon our hearts, would enlighten us so that we can believe, so that we can walk as children of the light. Be with us to that end, we ask in your name. Amen. The hours of our lives come and go. They pass by us quickly in an unstoppable succession. Some of the hours of our lives that come, we wish that they would never come. We would never have chosen to see that hour. And other hours of our lives. We can't wait for them to get here, and we just assume that they never ended, that they never stopped, because they were such sweet hours. And of course, many of the hours of our lives are spent doing things that are rather routine, uh, going to work, going to school, or uh, traveling between school and work, eating, sleeping, Some hours are routine hours, and other hours are full of significance. Maybe they're full of significance because they were hours in our lives that were really just wonderful. Or maybe they were hours of significance in our lives because they were terrifying to us. Or they were excruciatingly painful hours for us. Some of them drag along. Some of them fly by. But for Jesus, this hour, the hour of which he is speaking right here, has been anticipated. And in this hour is encapsulated the purpose for which he came into this world. That's how significant it is. Without this hour, nothing else makes any difference at all. Without this hour... His mission is incomplete in the world, and not only would his mission be incomplete, but his life would be incomprehensible to us without this hour. John has been a wonderful book for us to be in together. We have walked along with Jesus, and John has carefully selected for us miracles, signs that reveal to us who Jesus is, and in addition to that, we've been able to look, as you look through the Gospel of John, at these incredible discourses, this teaching that Jesus provides that oftentimes explains and unlocks what's going on in those particular miracles. But it would be for naught, and it would be bewildering to us, were it not for this hour. This hour orients his life. His life is directed towards this hour, and this hour orients our lives and our hours as well. Jesus explains the significance of the hour, not only for himself, but for us as well. 
Now, just one quick thing before we look at the significance of this, before we uh, consider it. As in English, so in Greek, when we hear the word hour, we can, like hearing the word day, take that in a couple of senses. On the one hand, we might hear the word hour and think of a specific 60-minute period or a specific hour of the day. On the other hand, an hour can represent a defined amount of time, just like day. Same thing here in Greek as well. Uh, This particular hour of which Jesus is speaking does not mean the next 60 minutes of his life. Okay? This hour of which he is speaking is, in, at a minimum, the next several days of his life. It encompasses his death, and it will certainly encompass his resurrection, and perhaps we can say even uh, his ascension to the right hand of the Father as well. This hour, this hour is the reason for which I have come. So, like a day, the last day or the last days, this hour is over the course of, at a minimum, the next week of his life. But let's consider this text that is before us today and see how Jesus describes what takes place in this hour. What's the significance of the hour? And I think there are four words that we can use to encapsulate the significance of the hour and what Jesus has to say in the passage that is right before us. They don't rhyme, they don't alliterate, they're not an acrostic. Sorry about that. Uh, You can jot them down if you need to. But here you go. The first word is this. This will be the hour of anguish. The hour of anguish. He starts off our section, now is my soul troubled. We've seen this before in the life of Jesus. If you've been with us before Christmas, we saw it, of course, when he was at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He was troubled there. It will come again in the next chapter, chapter 13, after saying these things. Jesus was troubled in spirit. In the other Gospels, in the Synoptic Gospels, this idea that is being expressed here is most clearly seen in the life of our Lord when he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying there. His soul is deeply troubled. It is the hour of the anguish of the soul of the Son of Man in the face, in the immediate presence of, in the immediate expectation of his own suffering and humiliation and death. Now, to be sure, as has been clear throughout in the Gospel of John as we have worked our way through it, as we have walked along with Jesus, this hour has been anticipated. This hour has been expected. In fact, we can even safely say that this hour was ordained to be that hour before the very foundations of the earth were laid. This hour was planned. But that doesn't make it easy when it comes. And that's important for us to understand. It's important for us to see the humanity of Jesus, that he doesn't just brush it off like, well, I know what's going to happen, you know, a little bit of trouble, everything's going to be fine in the end. He doesn't brush it off. He's deeply troubled about this impending hour 
and all that it entails. Our hymns today, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, they try to connect, but our hymns today have all spoken of an hour. Uh, Come Thou Almighty King, the opening hymn, spoke of in this glad hour. At the name of Jesus, we sang in temptation's hour. We'll sing of it in our last hymn as well. Every passing hour we'll talk about. And another hymn that I couldn't fit in the service today, praise, Oh, comfort us in death's approaching hour. That's what the hour is about here. It's an hour of anguish. It's death's approaching hour. It's an ugly, painful, shameful, humiliating death. He will be, as he says, lifted up. And he said this to show the means by which he would be killed. He will be lifted up from the earth, and as we said last week, an ugly fruit hanging on an ugly tree, a dead, bleeding, beaten man on a wooden cross, and he's troubled. And we need to consider the two phrases in verse 27 that come after this, wherein the, the, the tormenting tension of the moment is revealed for us in what he says. The words are, of course, there, what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour. There are uh, two ways that you can hear these words from Jesus. Uh, the first is a change in the punctuation that is found in your ESV Bible or in the text as it's printed for you in the bulletin this morning. The second phrase has a question mark after it. Father, save me from this hour? Question mark. Uh, if you put a period there, there are, no, uh, there are no punctuation marks in the Greek, so if you put a period there, you could read this text by Jesus saying as a prayer, Father, save me from this hour. That's not a question mark, that's a prayer. It's a petition going up to God, and if we read the text in that way, then it would be analogous to the prayers that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. Save me from this hour. Let this cup pass from me, revealing to us the torment that exists in Jesus' soul, but then resolving into submission. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the words, of course, would then be, but not my will be done, your will be done in my life. Or the resolution in this passage here would be seen as Jesus says, uh, glorify your name. This is the purpose of my coming. The other option, that's one way to take this, the other option instead of taking this as a question is in, or as a statement, is instead taking it as a prayerful contemplation. In other words, in this case, Jesus would say, should I say this? What can I say? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? Should I pray like that? That's what the psalmist would pray 
in such circumstances. That's what God's people pray when we're in the midst of distress. That's what we pray for one another. If you're in a difficult situation, we'll pray for you. Father, save this person from that difficult situation. That's what you cry out when you're faced with the Egyptians on one side and the Red Sea on the other. Father, save us from this hour. Should I pray like that? To give you a specific example from Psalm 6, the psalmist prays like this, my soul is greatly troubled. Sounds just like the context, right? Just that's exactly what we're talking. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. That's how psalmists pray. That's how the people of God pray when we're in trouble. Lord, deliver us. Lord, save me from this hour. Should I pray like that? Asks our Lord. And answers it by saying, no. No. That prayer cannot be my prayer, for he did not come to be delivered from death, but to deliver through death. He's the one person who needed to pray that prayer differently than the others who had come before him. He prays so that others might be delivered through his death, and personally I am inclined towards this understanding of it. Though it is a soul-ripping anguish, his prayer then is in effect not, save me, but instead, save them. Save them through this hour. D.A. Carson quotes, that is why Jesus is so troubled. The horror of death and the ardor of his obedience are meeting together, and he's troubled. It's a time of anguish. The second word is this. This will be an hour of glory. I hope that I, and I hope that we, I hope that you never become too accustomed to this idea that we fail to see the wonder of an hour that can contain both anguish and glory at exactly the same time. Last week we saw Jesus in verse 23 say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And this week we see Jesus cry out in what I think is the triumph of his faith. Father, glorify your name. And in John 17, a couple of the verses are printed on the front of your bulletin. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Jesus is taking anguish and death and subsuming it under glory, under glory. And that, to me, is great. That which is so 
ignominious, that which is the opposite of glory. I've watched a lot of people that we love die. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing glorious about it. Nothing in the way it looks is glorious. It all looks the opposite. And now it's subsumed, brought under the light of glory. And thus the voice from heaven responds to that prayer only for the third time in Jesus' life at his baptism, at the transfiguration, and now, at this hour, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Words from the Father, those are words of confirmation, confirmation of purpose, confirmation of what has been and what will be. They're words of comfort and they're words of triumph. They are glorious words from the glorious Father to His glorious Son, who in the days ahead will look anything but glorious. No one will look at the Son over the next couple of days and say that He looks glorious. He will look inglorious. When we think of glory... And when we think of the glorious acts of God, perhaps we think, in line with the passage that we read earlier, perhaps we think of the acts of God as Moses and the Israelites sing about them in that deliverance from the Red Sea. You can read in that section about the glory, the way it's described, I will sing to the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, who like you is majestic and holiest, awesome in glorious deeds. We think of the glory of God as looking like this, dead Egyptians and living Israelites, the mighty acts of God revealed. But now instead, glory is going to look like living Romans and Greeks and a dead Israelite. That's an inverse of what we think of as glory. As what all of history has taught us, think of glory in this way, the enemies of God perishing. And Jesus says, I'm not going to switch that. His glory will look like Ichabod. Do you remember Ichabod? Not Ichabod Crane. Ichabod from 1 Samuel, when we were in it, I don't know, six months, a year ago, when we were in 1 Samuel. Ichabod, the glory has departed. The ark has been taken. There's no more light. There's no more shining. There's no more ark. The glory has been taken out of Israel. It's been taken into the land of Philistia. And now here, the glory will be crucified, and the glory then will be buried. No light, only darkness. Take the light, bury it into the ground. But as Jesus has told us 
in the passage that we looked at last week, he's not buried. He's planted. He's planted in the ground. And, and if you try to bury the light of the world in the ground, if you try and have the earth cover up the light, you know what happens? It rises. It rises. The earth can't cover up the light. Third word. This is an hour of judgment. Perhaps the judgment begins here as the people cannot understand or recognize even the voice of God when it comes, though Jesus said it came on their behalf, perhaps meaning our behalf as we read it and look back on it. Some say it's thunder, others say, no, it's an angel. But they can't perceive that it's God who is speaking in this very moment. Verse 31 confirms that this is the time of judgment. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Our passage started with now is my soul in anguish. Twice now here. Now is the judgment. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. There's an urgency that exists here an urgency that exists for Jesus, an urgency that exists for the world. Something is now going to take place. Now, we know from many places in Scripture that the judgment is to come, that that's sometime off in the future. So how do we make sense of the now of this? What does it mean when Jesus is using now? What is he referring to here? Well, I think now in the first place means that this is the inauguration of the day of the Lord, or the last days. It isn't the final judgment yet, but it is the beginning of the end. It is the beginning of the end. It is the now that anticipates that which will be its conclusion. Secondly, the judgment of God, when it falls upon humanity, will be based upon this hour. This hour of which we are speaking right now, of which Jesus is speaking right now, that will be the hour that judges everything else. It will judge all humanity. It will judge our lives. It will judge how you spent your hours with respect to this hour right here. And third... Jesus says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now, this is a reference to Satan. Satan usurped the throne of this world. He didn't take the throne of God. He didn't take this world's throne from God. He took the throne from man. We were the ones who were created to have dominion over this earth. We were the ones who were created to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and the creeping things and all of the living things that move. We were the ones who were supposed to be the rulers of this world. That's why God created us. And yet, in our fall, Satan grabbed the throne. 
And now, the second Adam is at hand. Jesus, the God-man, is going to win back the throne in this hour, at this time, even now. Now, a man is about to take it back and cast out, out of the throne, out of the chair, the usurper to it. And how is Jesus going to do that? How do you get Satan out of that throne? How will Satan be judged in this world? Jesus will win the victory by allowing the judgment to fall upon himself. Now is this world judged. Now I take upon myself the judgment that belongs to my people. I'm doing that now. And it will cast out the pretender from the throne. And I will take that which belongs to man. Judgment then begins for Satan and for his minions in this hour. Fourth word, last word. We've got anguish, glory, and judgment so far. And then finally this. This is the hour of drawing. Not the hour of doodling. The hour of drawing. The hour of gathering. Verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Lifted up, as it turns out, is not only a double entendre, it's a triple entendre. Lifted up describes the means by which he would die. He'd be lifted up from the earth, an awful death. Lifted up refers then to the resurrection, and lifted up refers to his ascension. When he ascends to the right hand of the Father and takes that position of authority. This is what was prophesied about him. Isaiah, Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Here's what's taking place here. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be exalted. And then as you continue on in Isaiah 53, Out of the anguish of his soul, my soul is troubled, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In his lifting up, the judgment falls upon him. He shall bear their iniquities, and the blessing goes out to the many to the many whose sins are then forgiven and are called the children of light. The lifting up will bear fruit, and all people will be drawn unto him. And all people can only mean one thing in this context. It's, it's given to us in what we looked at last week. All people means all kinds of people, not only the Jews, but also those couple of Greek guys who wanted to see me over there. That, that, remember, that's the trigger for this. All people will be drawn. At that time, when I'm lifted up, then those, then those Greeks who are standing in whatever, the third, the fourth row deep right now, 
then I'll draw them to me as well. I'll bring them in when I've been lifted up. The Greeks who are sitting over there. If you are here today, you are here today because this king is drawing all people to himself. That's why you're sitting here. Whatever you thought was the reason that you came here today, the reason you are here is because the king is doing this. He's drawn you to this place. On the front of your bulletin, I copied a verse from Daniel. And to him, to this one, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. The ruler of the world was cast out. Now it's given to this one, the second Adam, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The reason you sit here today is because he reigns and because he draws all people to himself. The people, of course, when they hear all of this, are confused about it. The hour hasn't been completed yet. You can't understand the hour yet. It has to actually be completed. But even now, in the light of what Jesus says, he has explained to them that it's a critical hour for him, and he turns immediately and says to them, therefore, it's a critical hour for you. It's not just a critical hour for him. It's a critical hour for you. It's urgent for those who were around him. He says to them, you have the light for a little while, for a little while, for a micron of time. You have the light with you for a little while longer. And the call to those who were there who were not believers in him, the call that he made to them is crystal clear. Believe in the light. While the light is here, while I am with you, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. That's the call. It's the call for them. This was applied to them who were standing there at that time as well. It's to you as well. A little while. That's what we've been given. A little while. Believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. To believers, to Christians, the call sounds like this. Walk in the light. I'm not going to refer to the passages right now. It's in the text. Walk in the light that the darkness may not overwhelm you. Believe in the light, and as sons and daughters of the light, walk in the light. Don't let the days pass you by. Don't let the hours pass you by. They are critical. They are urgent. And as a friend of mine used to say, they're numbered. They're numbered, each one of them. I hate the NFL draft. Some of you have no idea what the NFL draft is, God bless you. If you love the NFL draft, 
God have mercy on your soul. Um, I think it's ridiculous. I think it's over the top. I think it's an exercise in self-importance and marketing and hype, if not just pure, plain, straight-out idolatry. Can't stand it. But there is a phrase in the midst of the NFL draft that I think is helpful to us today. When, in the first round, the commissioner of the NFL launches this showpiece of a draft, he comes to the microphone, there's a podium, and he comes to the podium, and he'll say, Cincinnati is now on the clock. And then once Cincinnati has made their selection, he'll say, whatever, Dallas is now on the clock. Philadelphia is now on the clock in succession. On the clock means this. You've got 10 minutes. From the moment that is said, a timer goes off, and you've got 10 minutes. During that 10 minutes, you need to make your choice, or you need to make a trade. One of the two things need to take place in that first round. My friends, in light of this hour for Jesus Christ, you're on the clock. You're on the clock. Eternity has been set in our hearts. That's what Ecclesiastes says. Eternity has been set in our hearts. But in this world, you're on the clock. How many generations have come and gone since that hour? Depends on how you define a generation. Let's take 25 years. If 25 years, that means 75 generations have come and gone since this hour right here. Seventy-five generations of people before us have been on the clock. They've made their choice. One way or the other, for life or for death, they've made their choice. You're on the clock. Because of this hour, Lord God, in heaven above. Grant us grace to seek after you. Great God in heaven, you know how often we have frittered away hours, spent them in things useless or worse. Forgive us, have mercy on us, and turn us Turn us unto you, that having been turned, we might choose you. Lord, for those who are here today, whose lives have slipped away into obscurity, into selfishness, into forgetting about you, may this be the hour of their salvation. And for all of us, may we walk in the light as you are in the light. Let me pray this in your name. Amen.